Hello and welcome to the final episode in this series of the Virgin Disruptors podcast, the show all about creating change in the world of business and beyond, with tips on creating a positive impact in terms of purpose, performance, people and planet. I think my definition of a disruptor is somebody who wants to challenge the status quo. They are in effect a dissenter. They want to change something. They will do it at all costs. In this episode, we welcome an award-winning activist and co-founder of Inspire, a counter-extremism and women's rights organisation working hard to close divisions in our world. You're listening to the Virgin Disruptors podcast with Sarah Khan. Sarah is an inspirational figure and disruptive figurehead in shifting the dialogue we have around peace, stability and fostering an inclusive world, all of which are subjects close to all of our hearts. Sarah, for me, was one of the most captivating orators I think I've heard. You know, in that auditorium, you could have heard a pin drop amongst our 600-strong crowd. So let's head to the stage. Sarah Khan in conversation, live at the Virgin Disruptors event in London. Good morning, everyone. I don't have any exciting slides or anything interactive today. I'm just going to talk, and so I hope I can keep your interest. Politics, as we know it, is changing. And today, we find ourselves in the midst of a new political divide. The traditional days of left and right are now slowly being replaced with what are often termed as open and closed societies. In the US and across Europe, The politicians we often see who have the greatest momentum are those whose rhetoric is often nationalist, populist, anti-diversity, and anti-establishment. From Donald Trump in the US, to Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, to Marine Le Pen in France, the propaganda is the same. And many politicians are cynically pandering to voters by engaging in the politics of fear of the other of us versus them. Their vision is of a closed society, of the building of walls and of the burning of bridges as opposed to international cooperation and of the building of bridges. And at this time, we also find that we are living in a post-truth society where facts and the opinions of experts no longer really matter. Who can forget when Michael Gove famously said, during the EU referendum campaign. People in this country have had enough of experts, but it also appears that we seem to have had enough of facts as well, and that we'd rather be driven by our emotions. In this post-Brexit world, it is the politics of fear that is contributing to the construction of closed societies. And it's not surprising that The Economist, after the EU referendum campaign, and on the brink of the US elections, wrote, and I quote, It is this that is the greatest threat to the free world. And nothing is more important than countering it. There's never been a better time for the rise and appeal of those politicians who advocate and peddle the politics of fear. The world has changed dramatically in the last few decades. Neat and clear demarcating lines between left and right, east and west, local and global are all blurred. And the world is in a constant state of flux, presenting unprecedented challenges that brings anxiety, uncertainty, and fear. 
Never since the Second World War, for example, have we witnessed millions of refugees traveling and migrating across our world, trying to come to Europe. At the same time, we see the rise of Islamist-inspired terrorism, where groups like ISIS are encouraging homegrown European citizens to run over children in France or to slaughter elderly priests. All of these different phenomena, while all different, are often portrayed by politicians in convincing people to buy into the politics of fear. So as a result, the new political fault lines center around immigration, identity politics, security, globalization, and Islam. The center ground of politics is under threat, but so is the wider middle ground that advocates for shared values and a common humanity. And it's particularly under threat because of the rise of extremism, both Islamist and far-right. And so I put it to you that each and every one of us, every single one of us, who care about the small planet that we all have to live on together, that we all have to coexist on together, that we all have a responsibility in challenging extremism and the politics of fear, and that we do so in an attempt to protect that middle ground. I think Islam sometimes brings fear, and we see how politicians advocate that view. And so I think it's important that as a Muslim, I believe we have an open and honest and frank discussion about Islam and Islamist extremism, and that we can have a dialogue with each other without the fear of being called an Islamophobe or worry that we might cause offense. Because I have seen for far too long many of these important discussions being closed down precisely of such worries, and it does little to serve anyone or anybody, least of all Muslim parents who can see their children are being radicalized by Islamist extremists, girls as young as 13 that I've worked with. But at the same time, many Muslims fear a rising hostile anti-Muslim society. So yes, let's have this conversation, but let's do it in a climate where we are concerned about protecting our common humanity, not to whip up or peddle anti-Muslim hatred. Now, in order to weaken the appeal of closed societies, we have to acknowledge the perceptions that people have of Islam. So last year, for example, there was a survey conducted by YouGov Cambridge program, which highlighted that 55% of British voters believed that there was a fundamental clash between Islam and British values. But are we left to believe that that's the only option? that there is an inevitable clash of civilizations? Or do we refuse to acknowledge that actually the picture is a lot more nuanced than we give credit for? Do we even understand the difference between Islam and Islamist extremism, the latter of which is origins are founded in the 20th century modern ideology, which promotes a puritanical and politicized reading of my faith? I'm a Muslim. Islam has and continues to shape my humanistic outlook. But I know that Islam is undergoing its own tumultuous crisis. My faith is consumed by its own battle between an open Islam and a closed Islam. That there are Muslims who are fighting for 
the very shared values that we all seek to have and to defend, that there are Muslims who believe in an open, tolerant, and plural interpretation of the faith that stands for equality, human rights, and freedom of expression. But at the same time, that there are other Muslims who don't subscribe to these views and who believe that Islam is supremacist and it absolutely opposes human rights. The reality is that there are Muslims paying the price every day for fighting for these shared values, many of them paying the ultimate price. It's not out of coincidence that Islamist groups like ISIS, for example, deliberately target Muslim activists and imams who advocate for the open and plural Islam. But the anti-Muslim rhetoric that is so common today ends up sweeping all Muslims with the same extremist brush. Wittingly or unwittingly, we actually undermine those very Muslims who are on the front line battling Islamist extremism, but who are also trying to defend our open societies and an open Islam. You're listening to the final episode in this series of the Virgin Disruptors podcast with Sarah Khan. One of the things I loved about Sarah's talk was the fact that she really broke it down into pragmatic steps each of us could take and challenged all of us to be the change that we wanted to see in the world, starting first with the way that we interacted in our relationships with others. Remember, you can head to virgin.com for more from Virgin Disruptors, as well as more podcasts and articles including more opinions and perspectives on social justice issues. Before we rejoin Sarah in the auditorium, here's a few words with her backstage. I think a lot of people aren't that disruptive because I think there's an element of fear. People think, well, is this going to work out? If I do try to challenge the status quo, what are going to be the ramifications to me? So perhaps if you want to start a new business, you might think, well, do I have enough money to do so? Am I brave enough to go into an area? So I think fear is a, is a real element and self-doubt as well. Um, but really, you know, when I speak to young people, I just say to them, ignore your, your self-doubters, that you have people saying to you all the time, and just feel the fear and do it anyway. I wouldn't say that disruption, or me disrupting anything, has backfired. I would say it has really pushed me to the fore in terms of, yes, getting backlash, getting abuse. Um, making me sometimes question, is this worth it? You know, when if the police are coming around and saying you might need security, you do kind of think, is this worth it? But I think, for me personally, it just motivates me to do it even more because I know I'm doing the right thing. If I am causing that disruption, if I am challenging that status quo, and I know that that's what's needed, I think I just take it on as going, that's what I need to do more of, so you just keep going. It's very hard to pin down one ultimate disruptor. For me personally, it has to be Muslim women activists that I know. So for example, women like Shireen Ibadi, who's an Iranian Nobel Peace Prize winner, who challenged the Iranian religious orthodoxy and clerics from fighting for women's rights and human rights, you know, and, and being arrested for it. And so, um, and even having facing possible assassination attempts. So someone like her inspires me, as does pe do people like Malala Yousafzai. Um, a female Muslim theologian called Amna Wadud who really broke boundaries in terms of pushing the idea of women's rights in Muslim communities. So I get real inspiration from, I think, women in particular because they are often also not only looking after their kids and, and raising homes and families, but they're also breaking boundaries from a glass ceiling perspective, but also culturally as well. So I, I find real inspiration from, from women, I think. <laughs> So let's join Sarah back on stage, speaking live at the Virgin Disruptors event. 
Now, I said I wanted to have an honest discussion about Islam and Muslims. And the truth is that in our country, there are two trends happening. There is a positive trend and a negative trend being cultivated, not only in our country, but in many European countries and Western countries across the world. On the one hand, we see a growing, positive, vibrant trend amongst young British Muslims who are breaking the boundaries, who are excelling in all fields, in music, in arts, politics, in fashion and drama. These young Muslims are perfectly comfortable in their identity as Muslims and as a Westerner. They occupy that space and walk in that space of the middle ground all the time. This is the positive trend that we need to continue to cultivate. But the reality is that there also is a very negative trend a trend, a parallel trend, which over the last 25 years has seen a rise of very conservative and negative views towards equality, for example, predominantly because of the active proselytizing of conservative Salafi and Islamist groups. And we have seen some British Muslims, as a result, gone on to hold these derogatory views who oppose human rights, but even more worryingly, we have seen some young British Muslims leave our country to join ISIS, to pledge allegiance to them. Some as young as 20 have been convicted of planning to carry out terror atrocities in our country. Islamist extremism is a reality in our country and in our world. It didn't appear out of nowhere, and to a large degree, it remains unchallenged by all of us. Now, this presents an uncomfortable truth to some in our society, some liberals, some anti-racist campaigners, and even indeed some on the left, who in their desire to stand up against anti-Muslim hatred, choose to ignore the elephant in the room. But again, that serves nobody, because those voters who are increasingly attracted to the idea of a closed society and to the populist narrative we're seeing more and more, feel that nobody is talking about the elephant in the room except those populist politicians which is why we need to address it. And I personally have often felt frustrated with sections of the British left here, where I've seen that they refuse to talk about Islamist extremism, or even worse, they have chosen to align themselves with Islamist groups over and above Muslims like myself who advocate for human rights. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we all have a responsibility in protecting the middle ground. Extremism is on the rise, and it's increasingly not only polarizing our society, but contributing to this idea that we need to engage in the politics of fear. So I just want to share four key practical things as ideas for what I think we need to do to fight back against the idea of the closed society. And they involve the individual, schools, civil society, and businesses, and what role we can play. Well, firstly, as individuals, we can all play a very small role but very significant role. If we come across extreme or hate-filled views in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, we'll challenge it, counter those arguments. If we come across extremist material online, of which there is a plethora, report it. There are so many reporting bodies out there, sites like seereportit.org, and that matters. It helps in getting rid of those extreme views that a lot of young people are witnessing again and again. Secondly, the role of schools. Education is vital. 
I fundamentally believe that schools should be at the forefront of teaching young pupils the importance of human rights. Why? Well, if you look at what all extremists have in common, they all oppose equality and human rights. Whether it's Islamist extremists who oppose gay rights and women's rights, or far-right extremists who advocate hate and violence against Muslims or Jews, they all fundamentally oppose the notion of human rights. And I have seen how when you teach young children the idea and belief value of human rights, I've seen how you're building early resilience in young children to extremist views and ideas. So I would like to see human rights being taught as part of the national curriculum. But I think we're a very long way of seeing our government implement that, but we have to lobby hard for this, particularly at a time when the government at the moment is threatening to scrap the Human Rights Act. Thirdly, we need to invest and build an inclusive online and offline civil society movement that's not only going to challenge extremism and oppose the politics of hate, but it actually sells its own brand, its own message, the idea that we believe in the politics of hope, in shared values, in a common humanity. And we talk about that and promote an alternative, pluralist counter-narrative to our children in youth clubs or in schools, and even, indeed, even in our places of worship. We have a brand. We have a message, and we're not selling it, and we need to do more to counter that. And that battle has to also be taken online. Social media is a hub for extreme views. You know, let me give you an example. Britain First has over 1.5 million likes on Facebook, contributing to that echo chamber effect where people constantly hear their views being thrown back at them. There is no civil society counter-led movement which is anywhere near that many likes in terms of promoting a positive counter-message. That tells you about the scale of the problem that exists at the moment in our country. Fourthly, for us to build this inclusive and dynamic movement, we need the corporate world to understand why they have to invest and why this matters to all of us, including themselves. I've spent eight years working in the counter-extremism field, and I can tell you it's taken a long time for the corporate world to understand why they matter. And I can also tell you that the vast majority of counter-extremism groups in this country are under-resourced and underfunded. It's a battle where our side is losing in terms of those resources. I just want to end by saying, yes, the world is shifting, politics is changing, but how it changes for the better or for the worse is directly down to us, than to each and every one of us. It's a result of our activity or inactivity. It's in response to our concern or our difference. But what I do know is that change is possible. And I wouldn't get up every morning and do what I did if I didn't have 100% conviction in that. History is the greatest testifier which has demonstrated that change has occurred because of the compassionate and bravery of the human spirit. Today, again, we need that courageous and merciful human spirit to fight on for the politics of hope and for our common humanity. So I put it to you. Who of you will stand up and defend and protect our middle ground? Thank you.
Thanks to Sarah Khan for an incredibly powerful talk. This day was quite extraordinary. As you've probably got a sense of from listening to the podcast, Virgin Disruptors was an extraordinary melting pot of ideas, energy and inspiration. I feel so privileged to have been able to MC and moderate the event, acting as Chief Navigator and the Forensic Questioner for our 600-strong crowd and now our wonderful global podcast audience. It was a real privilege to hear from so many extraordinary leaders and innovators who were willing to open up their handbook and share so willingly from their experience in order that we might be able to take away nuggets and put them into play to be more effective disruptors in our own lives. I hope, like me, you've come away with your head buzzing full of ideas, motivated and inspired by those that you've heard, and ready now to go out there and start putting these things into practice. For now, from me and all of the team at Virgin, that's it for this year of Virgin Disruptors. But if you want more, please head to the website virgin.com where you'll find podcasts, blogs, more information with how you can connect with our speakers and continue to be a part of this conversation. We'll see you in 2017. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.